This series comes with a content note for anyone who has been through abuse or knows someone who has. Statistically, that is a lot of us. Some of what you'll hear in this podcast is distressing. Although we know it's important to hear directly from victim survivors about what they've been through, this content may be confronting and won't be suitable for everyone. Please check the show notes for phone numbers you can contact to receive confidential support. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, supporting long-term financial independence for victim survivors through ComBank Next Chapter. We acknowledge that we produce this series on what always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. Please note that the statements made in this episode should not be considered advice. Please consider your personal circumstances and reach out for help via the support services in the show notes before making any decisions. Later on into the relationship, it got so bad that I'd be grateful that he didn't kill me. And that's just a ridiculous statement to make now. But at the time, I'd be thankful that he didn't carry out threats. And so, he's a pretty good guy, he didn't kill me. Good guy, he didn't kill me. Domestic violence cases have surged in Sydney. A husband accused of stabbing his wife. In a shocking domestic violence attack. Domestic violence is a national crisis. We've had an absolute tragedy occur here tonight. My name is Tharang Chavla and I'm a writer, lawyer and anti-violence advocate. I'm also the host of There's No Place Like Home, a podcast about family violence that puts the voices of survivors at the centre of the story. Throughout this season, you've heard from survivors about what their lives were like during an abusive relationship or shortly after. In this final episode, we're delving into the emotional journey after abuse. What does the path to long-term recovery look like? How do you retrieve, revive and redefine your sense of self? And as a nation, where do we go next? Look, I mean, it can be very, very hard for people with experiences of trauma to actually come to terms with what they've experienced, to actually understand that it's abuse or it's violence or whatever trauma it is, that it's wrong and that they're not to blame. It's my privilege to introduce you to someone who's been on that healing journey and is now helping others do the same. Her name is Deborah. 19 years ago, Deborah and her three young daughters escaped her abusive husband with $100 and the clothes on their backs. I'll never be back to where I was before the abuse. I've changed irreparably, but I've also changed the better because since I left, I've written two books. I've trained as an advocate victims of abuse I've um, legislated for law reform in Tasmania. I was born with physical disability. It was genetic, but I didn't become symptomatic until I'd left the abuser. In order to fully appreciate what Deborah has recovered from, you first need to hear what she's endured. Violence that began in 1985. Let me tell you about Australia in 1985. Rape in marriage had not yet been criminalised. So-called radical feminists had opened Australia's first women's refuge just 11 years earlier, 
financial abuse, and the notion that a woman should have access to money of her own was not widely accepted. Deborah herself was 24 years old, and she'd just met Wayne. That's not his real name. I was quite naive, immature. I hadn't really grown up as an adult, and I believed the best of people. So when he appeared, I just thought, oh, he's a really nice guy. He's really interested in me. He enjoys talking to me. He wants to spend as much time as possible with me. So I just assumed he was okay. Only two months into their romantic relationship, Deborah agreed to move in with Wayne. Physical abuse started soon after, but when we first moved in together, he was very argumentative and he'd refused to talk to me for days on end and then turn around and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I love you so much, I'm really sorry, I haven't been talking to you and he'd be attentive again. And these sort of turnarounds were starting to really prey on my brain. It left me really open to abuse because I just couldn't think for myself. But Deborah loved Wayne and she stayed with him, hoping that he'd change. Layered on top of Deborah's love was her sense of isolation from others and having no one to talk to. You see, in 1985, domestic abuse and violence was still considered to be nobody's business but the couple themselves. It was a very commonly held perception that this was a private matter between a man and his wife. And that was not just within embedded within society, but certainly the majority of the authorities who were responding to it, including police, including the legal system. That was the former CEO of Domestic Violence New South Wales, Moo Balch. She's an advisor for Combank's Next Chapter program and a respected and experienced advocate. I think where it was a more public matter, where it was considered something kind of beyond the family context, usually when a woman was murdered, to be honest, or when a woman and her children were murdered, there was very little connection made to the broader problem of violence against women, gender-based violence being a thing within society that might be actually driving these behaviours that are in somebody's family context. Deborah has written a memoir called Whose Life Is It Anyway? Recognising and Surviving Domestic Violence. The chapters are made up of verbatim diary entries which Deborah wrote during her relationship with Wayne. They date from the beginning of their relationship in 1985 right up until its end in 2003. We've asked an actor to read from that memoir. Horrible day. I tried to avoid Wayne as he was in a bad mood. Picky. Then at lunchtime he didn't eat the meal I cooked. He got up without saying a word to me, just ran at me, dragged me into the lounge room and pushed me onto the ground so roughly that I got carpet burn on the elbow. I'd like to issue another content note here because Deborah's diary entries become even more distressing. She describes extreme physical violence, including violence that was witnessed by her own children. This entry came nine years into Deborah and Wayne's relationship. He ran into the bedroom and got the gun. A 22 calibre rifle. I was running to the door, saw he had the gun, so I dropped to the floor in the family room, crouching on my knees, and sat covering my head with my hands. And he said he was going to shoot me then and there. I said, please don't do this in front of the kids. And I begged him not to do it, but if he was going to, 
to do it outside where the kids didn't have to see it. I believed he was going to shoot me, and I was resigned to being killed. I was terrified, yet part of me just wanted it to be over with. I partly didn't care anymore because I really thought it was the end. He seemed to be so certain that he wanted me dead and that this was the best way to do it. He held the gun to my right temple for a while, then he kicked me and he said, you're not worth a bullet. Despite the horror that was unfolding at home, from the outside, Deborah's life looked like the picture of happiness. She had a husband, three kids, two houses, and the couple owned and operated a successful business together. My name is Liana Papoutsis. I am an academic in the field of international law, human rights, and more close to home, family violence. Liana is one of the most influential and prolific advocates for ending family violence in Australia. She's also a highly sought-after lawyer who advises the government on how we can better protect women and girls. She's also fled a violent relationship in her own life. People think, oh, what happens in some dodgy suburbs? Or this is all a fallacy. Family violence occurs across all cultures, all socioeconomic demographics. The level of education is relevant. I will probably put myself as a fairly fair example of a woman with horrific lived experience of family violence who one would look at me and go, ah, you're highly educated, how did that happen to you? We asked Liana to explain why someone in Deborah's situation couldn't leave for so many years. Danger and fear. Those two elements are at the forefront of a victim survivor's mind. Because when you're looking at the the dynamics of family violence, it's all about power and control. So when a perpetrator starts to understand that they are losing control over their victim, the violence starts to increase in severity and frequency. So there are threats to kill either yourself as the victim and if there are children involved and all the children. So it's either you or the children or you and the children. There's other things like... You can go wherever you like, which they don't mean, of course. A perpetrator will never mean, well, you can leave. They say it, but there'll be ramifications. And then they say, you can leave, but you'll never see the children again. It's not just the danger and fear that Liana describes. Deborah repeatedly uses the word brainwashed to describe how she was taught to dismiss her concerns about the life that she was boxed into. I thought... Wayne's not that bad. We're, we've got a good business. We're making money. He's um, a hard worker. Um, we have beautiful property. Although technically they both had money, practically speaking, it was all Wayne's. One of the things is that financial abuse is actually really hard to see sometimes and it's often hidden in the construct of a relationship of, well, I trust my partner. And there's a perception that I think society-wise that it's okay for one partner to take the lead in the financial responsibilities of the relationship. And absolutely it is okay. Where it becomes problematic though is that someone uses that trust to use power and control to hide things but it's often hidden in plain sight and I think that's really that can be something we hear in the hub is how did I not see this how did I not know that was Louise Allright from Good Shepherd 
the oldest charity in Australia, working to keep women and girls safe from violence. Louise is the National Program Manager at its Financial Independence Hub, which it runs in partnership with ComBank. The hub supports people to identify financial abuse and works alongside them to build financial independence and well-being. During abuse, perpetrators attempt to dominate a victim's life and money gives them even more power to do just that. What happens is, is that what people may see is that their world shrinks down and it's not even the perpetrator saying you can't see your friends, it's the creation of the restriction of income that creates no other solution internally that the person can see that I'll just, I just won't go because it's embarrassing. I don't want to not be able to pay for coffee and cake. And people might ask me questions. Louise adds that Deborah's perception that it was bad, but that it could be worse because they had a home and money isn't uncommon when you're still trapped. And often... What we see is that once people have left and they start to look back, it's like the bits of the jigsaw puzzle suddenly come together and there's more clarity and someone can, they can see it. And so the enormity and the extent of the abuse is often not understood in the people that we, you know, who we speak to until they have left and they're they're trying potentially to rebuild. Wayne wasn't only manipulating and abusing Deborah, He was controlling the kids too. Deborah's two eldest daughters were coached over many years to disrespect and blame Deborah for her own abuse. But Kira, the youngest child, wasn't old enough to be a target of Wayne's indoctrination. And at just four years old, little Kira said something that changed everything for her mum. The girls were screaming outside the door, but Wayne didn't care. He was so furious that nothing was going to stop him from hurting me. He pushed me onto the bed and threw himself on top of me, placing his chest over my face and grinding down so that I couldn't breathe. Kira came running into the room, screaming, What are you doing to Mummy? Wayne got up and laughed, saying that we were just playing, and he left the room. I sat on the edge of the bed in shock, not able to think or feel. Kira puts her arms around me and she said, You have to get out of here, Mummy, over and over. We asked Deborah what that felt like to have her child recognise the abuse and reflect it back with absolute clarity. Empowering and amazing as well because no one had said that for 15 years. I hadn't told my own family about the abuse because I was afraid all the time. I was fearful of the repercussions. So no one had said that to me 15 years and it made me realise that if a young child can see that something's wrong, maybe there really is something wrong. Little Kira told Deborah to leave in April. Nine months later, with Kira's words still ringing in her ears, Deborah made her decision to leave. Kira took me into mine and Wayne's bedroom after he'd gone to work, saying that she wanted to show me something. She led me to one of the clothes cupboards where there was a gap between it and the wall. There in the gap was one of Wayne's rifles, a short barrel, 10-shot, semi-automatic, one of the guns he'd not handed in during the amnesty following the Martin Bryant shootings in Port Arthur, Tasmania. Kira told me that Daddy had taken the gun down from the roof in her presence 
and put it beside the cupboard, back far enough that I probably wouldn't have noticed it had Kira not told me. She said he told her that he was going to shoot Mummy with it if she was naughty. Leaving was beginning to look like a possibility. It's been more than 35 years since Deborah and Wayne's relationship began and 19 since Deborah left. Deborah told us that her reason for speaking out is to help others. She explains that leaving Wayne with three children in tow was not only emotionally fraught, but a logistical and financial nightmare. Deborah wants for other survivors to be prepared and to recognise the various forms that abuse can take. I advise people when they're considering leaving beforehand to make a plan with someone they trust or as domestic violence social worker, start making a plan. Hide your important papers, documents, a little bit of money, children's toys, clothes, anything that will help you when you leave. Make that plan, get things together because I didn't and I made the mistake of leaving with the children with virtually a couple of hundred dollars in my wallet, which I was supposed to be using for food shopping that day. If there'd been open discussion as there is now, I would have been better able to understand, recognise, cause of control. I can't stress enough how vital that conversation is for society to be having, talking about cause of control, talking about subtle forms of abuse in a relationship. If I'd known about those in the 80s and 90s, I would have left far sooner than I did. Deborah's advocacy work has been an incredible act of service to the whole community. Dr Kathy Kesselman is a trauma expert and CEO of Blue Knot Foundation, an organisation that works to empower recovery for Australians living with the impact of violence, abuse or neglect. Cathy says that both shame and accepting that you are now safe are a part of the healing challenge for victim survivors. Many, many victim survivors blame themselves and carry an absolutely chilling amount of shame And that can be really incredibly difficult to work through, particularly in a society which often treats victims, often blames victims, and treats the whole issue of violence, domestic violence, with a lot of stigma, a lot of judgment and a lot of discrimination. Having lived for so longer in danger and not having felt or been safe, being betrayed by someone that you should absolutely be able to trust such a primary betrayal and you know how do you rebuild your sense of safety in a world that's been so dangerous how do you develop your own sense of autonomy when you've been so disempowered dr kesselman says that this kind of work can also be healing for victim survivors and perhaps that's why so many of the experts and advocates that we've spoken to for this podcast are survivors of violence too As survivors, we've been very disempowered, but we've been very strong because we've survived. We've survived situations that no one should ever have survived. So that's the first thing, to connect into your own strengths and then find other ways to build it along the way. And advocacy and being an advocate for others 
and try to change the future for other people is a very powerful motivator. Moo Balch, who you've gotten to know over this series, has dedicated her working life to the prevention of family violence. She says that survivors, like Deborah, who share their stories in pursuit of change, are instrumental in achieving policy reform. I would say it's exponential. There is much broader public awareness. This stuff does make headlines. You're making this podcast. Domestic and family violence is now seen as everyone's business. There is such enthusiasm in the public and private sector to contribute in this space. It's no longer just a problem of police and women's refuges. All levels of government in Australia are now committed to improving their response and more and more looking at it through a prevention lens as well. Deborah got away from Wayne in 2003. But without access to money, Wayne's financial abuse continued to hamper Deborah's chance for a fresh start. Deborah and her girls spent time in women's shelters, they battled Centrelink for payments, and they struggled to prove that even though Deborah's name was technically on the deeds of two properties, that the family could not live safely in either of them. Australia has changed in so many ways in the intervening years. But for all of the progress that we've made, there are themes of Deborah's story that you'll have heard in the stories of all of our victim survivors. The cycle of violence keeps repeating itself, and far too often, access to money and resources is what stands in the way of people deciding to leave a relationship and being able to re-establish their lives. I think one of the biggest ones is the recognition of financial abuse as a thing. It wasn't considered a part of, or it wasn't named as a part of domestic and family violence for a very, very long time. It was certainly something that a frontline case manager working with the woman escaping domestic violence would have recognised as one of a range of different types of behaviours that would have been controlling. But financial abuse wasn't really a thing. It wasn't understood outside of that context and it certainly wasn't understood by things like banks and financial institutions and other entities and agencies that end up dealing with the impacts of financial abuse. So we've come a long, long way over the last couple of decades. Sean Lewis is Group Executive of HR at ComBank. She's been involved in ComBank's Next Chapter program to support long-term independence for survivors of domestic abuse for six years. In that time, Sean has seen what can be achieved through counselling and positive interventions like interest-free loans. She says that financial abuse has a knock-on effect that lingers long after the abusive relationship ends. Very often you emerge from financially abusive relationships with bad credit history, very little money, no assets, the need to go to court to kind of protect children or recover assets. All of that is a very difficult journey to to manage on your own, particularly if you're recovering from the the trauma of violence. So the Financial Independence Hub is is there to help people. It's a one-on-one financial counselling service for anybody, doesn't have to be a customer of the CBA, can go to the hub, get a highly trained counsellor to really talk them through all that's available to them as they get themselves back on their feet. Unusually in this sector as well, it's a long-term commitment. So we will keep working with the customer until they feel that they are back on their feet. If they want to, they can access an interest-free loan. Deborah is now financially secure and she's done an enormous amount of work on her psychological healing as well. 
Since I left the abuser, I had years of counselling, intense counselling, and I'm now over most of the post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma from the abuse. So mentally, I'm pretty good. For Deborah, there was another life-altering ramification of the violence perpetrated against her. Doctors discovered two aneurysms in Deborah's brain. And while Deborah did have a pre-existing disability, doctors believed that those aneurysms were the result of Wayne's violent attacks. Medical treatment has meant that Deborah's eyesight has been affected, and so has her mobility. The aneurysms are a reminder of what I went through and how needless it all was. And it sort of put me back a little. I was starting to make sense of the abuse until the neurosurgery and I sort of went backwards a little mentally and thought, God, am I ever going to escape from the repercussions of staying with that abuser for so long? But I'm working my way through that as well now. Dr Kesselman says that the long-term physical impacts of family violence can hinder one's emotional recovery as well. There's a term called post-traumatic growth. That's certainly part of what many, many survivors have experienced alongside a healing journey or towards the end of a healing journey, that they really have a very strong sense of who they are and have a very strong sense of their place in the world. They feel independent, they feel powerful, they feel connected they know what it is they want, they go about achieving it, they have a real sense of meaning with what they're doing. Kathy also advises that if you have a friend or loved one who's healing from trauma, your mere presence can be an act of support. You don't always need to know what to say, but to just show that you're there and that you're available and that you're listening and that you believe the person and just be guided by them along the way. But also to absolutely look after yourself. I'm going to bring in Sally Stevenson now. Sally is the general manager of the Illawarra Women's Health Centre, which supports more than 6,000 women every year and provides integrated care and social support. It's a women's only space where all doctors, nurses, psychologists, counsellors and social workers are female and trauma-informed. Sally says that, For all the progress that we've made, much more needs to be done to address the trauma that victim survivors experience both during and after abuse. You'll find it manifesting itself, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, suicidality, substance dependence, all that kind of stuff. But it also impacts on women's physical health. Women that have experienced violence and abuse have higher rates of cervical cancer, for example, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of arthritis. Because what we know is that trauma is held in the body. Mental trauma and physical trauma is held in the body and the body expresses it in a whole variety of ways. So it has a lifetime deficit for many women. The health system is not responding to that. It's not set up to respond to it. And even where there are services that do understand how to respond in a trauma-informed and violence-informed ways, they're so limited that the vast majority of women don't get it, they don't get the kind of support that they need and they don't get it over the time it takes. You've heard throughout this series how difficult it can be for a survivor 
to coordinate a multitude of support services after fleeing a violent and abusive relationship. Sally and the Illawarra Women's Health Centre have developed a new model of care for trauma recovery. But the beauty of the model that we've established, which is a one-stop wraparound service, providing at its core the key elements of recovery, mental health, social support, legal support and financial advice. That's at the core. The next level of support is co-located partners who can deliver services like Centrelink. And then the next level is really clear, soft, fast referral pathways to other services that, that a woman might need. The beauty of that is it's a standalone model. It's community-based and it's community-responsive. So all the research that we've done and the interviews that we've done reflect what is needed here in the Illawarra. That can be replicated across Australia. And the feedback that we've got and the support that we've got for this new model of care is national. After our interview with Sally, she got some incredible news. Her organisation received $25 million in the federal budget to fund a pilot centre, the Illawarra Domestic and Family Violence Trauma Recovery Centre. By 2031, she hopes there'll be another 19 centres running across Australia to support women and children escaping violence. Deborah has now been free of her abusive relationship for one year longer than she was in it. Although she still has nightmares, still jolts at most unexpected loud noises, Deborah is now happy. Deborah and her three daughters have all had intense counselling, which has helped. Her youngest daughter, Kira, now all grown up, spoke at her mum's recent book launch. Deborah's life is so much bigger than the worst things that were done to her. And her healing continues. Even now, sometimes I can just slip back into that shame of that thinking, why did I stay so long? Or why did I let that happen? Why didn't I just leave to begin with? And really, if you think objectively, what happened happened because you just couldn't think for yourself. You're incapable of thinking clearly. And that's his fault, not yours. For a long time, Deborah would speak at community and sector events about her experiences. Her disabilities make it harder for her to do that now, but participating in podcasts like this one means she can contribute from home. Deborah's actively lobbying for the criminalisation of coercive control. And Moo Borch says that thanks to the work of victim survivors like Deborah, Australia is well and truly headed in the right direction to eliminate family violence. So the national plan that ends this year, there's a 12-year national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. And I was just reading through the draft plan. And what I see is lots of the work that has been developed over the last 12 years really starting to be embedded. This really does pull everybody together and, and make all levels of government accountable, but also what I think it does really well is it fits so beautifully with our watches change the story, which tells us that prevention is a public health whole of community issue and responsibility, and that's fundamental. We still have a long way to go if we're going to prevent what happened to Deborah or my sister Nikki from happening to others. On average, 
One woman a week is killed by her current or former partner. One in six women and one in 17 men have experienced intimate partner violence. Based on an analysis in 2015, violence against women in Australia is costing our country more than $21.7 billion every year. And it's the leading driver of homelessness for women. Every Australian deserves to feel safe in their own home. And until that's true, there is more, so much more work that needs to be done. We have a decade now to get this right. We know so much in Australia now about domestic and family violence. We have two awesome institutions. We have the National Prevention Organisation, Our Watch, which has given us a really clear blueprint. No matter where we sit within Australian society, what we need to do to be part of the solution. And if all of those pieces come together, then I think we have the potential to much, much better by survivors. We have the potential to absolutely change the story and make sure that this is not the same experience for the next generation. This is the number one issue. It's not going to go away. It's not going to magically get better overnight. But if we treat this issue as one that impacts across every area of society, you know, costs billions of dollars a year and costs way more in terms of people's personal pain and the ripple impacts across families and communities, we can fix this. My name's Tharan Chavla, and this has been the final episode of There's No Place Like Home. Thank you for being with me and listening to these extraordinary victim survivors. It's been my privilege to share their stories with you. There's No Place Like Home is a Future Women podcast in collaboration with our proud partner, Commonwealth Bank, who are committed to helping end financial abuse through ComBank Next Chapter. No matter who you bank with, if you are worried about your finances because of domestic and family violence, you can contact ComBank's Next Chapter team on 1-800-222-387 within Australia or visit combank.com.au slash next chapter. If you need help or advice, please check the show notes for phone numbers for confidential support. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review. It will help these important stories to reach more people's ears. For more information about There's No Place Like Home or to join the movement, please head to futurewomen.com. This episode was produced by Jamila Rizvi, Sally Spicer, Tarang Chawla, Fleur Bitcon, Ella Jackson, Ruby Leigh Gatfield, India Bailey and Kate Lever. Editing by Bad Producer Productions. Artwork by Patty Andrews.